Centers. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today we're going to do a show that we always do at the end of the year, which is a review of the major economic and political events of the past year and comment on them. Of course, we've been talking about them throughout the year, but uh, let's kind of bring it all together in a big picture and try to make sense out of 2023. Because I tell you, 2024 is going to be even crazier than 23. Okay, what we're going to talk about today, in summary, are both some uh, key economic and then key political events. Some of the key economic events uh, are uh, what's happening to U.S. economy growth, GDP, and of course, what's happening to inflation. Uh, what about the jobs market here, which has been perplexing to mainstream policymakers? The March regional bank crisis, is it still with us? The debt ceiling deal of last June, major union strikes and negotiations of the past year, uh, the emergence of chat GPT and artificial intelligence, soft landing predictions for the economy, the Fed, Federal Reserve rate pause, Russian sanctions, and which we've seen the latest iteration here recently, and the Ukraine war funding, which is at the top of a policy crisis here, and China's economy. Okay, uh, we'll talk about those topics here and uh, give some comment on each and politically the topics of uh, great import of the past year of course at the top of the list would be the uh, Israeli Hamas war outbreak Ukraine's military offensive uh, failure changes in the house speakership McCarthy out Johnson in and it's a uh, launching of Biden impeachment hearings on corruption. The Colorado Supreme Court, now the main, uh, main state decisions to keep Trump off the primary ballots. Uh, I'll have some more in-depth discussion of that uh, here before we leap into this topic of the review. Uh, Trump's lead in the polls, what does that mean? His his uh, challengers seem to be fading pretty pretty fast. RFK Jr.'s challenge to the Democrats. College campus presidents uh, being fired over college protests over the war in Palestine. Taiwan's almost war. The Supreme Court. His decision, Roe v. Wade here, and ethical challenges. The BRICS expansion, and not least Putin's last recent decision, in this uh, speech rather, in December, and his Mideast trip. Okay, those are the main topics of this past year, and we want to jump right into them. There's a lot of them, so we can't say a lot, but hopefully give a big picture of the economic and political trends and crises that are still boiling and developing. 
uh, which some of which will no doubt erupt in 2024. <clears throat> okay, but before, as I said a minute ago, I wanted to make a commentary on what's going on uh, with these ballot denials, decisions by the uh, Colorado State Supreme Court, and now just recently, a couple of days ago, uh, Maine election officials here. Uh, I've never supported Republicans in my whole life. I've never voted for Republican. If my kids voted Republican, I disowned them. But, you know, I find myself sort of indirectly in agreement with some of them on this topic of ballot denial. Very, very dangerous to start denying people access to the ballot. And progressives and socialists out there should be aware of this. Creating a precedent, I mean, if they can start denying ballots, and of course they are, the Democrats are very aggressive now, you don't hear about it all, ballot denial of Greens and independents and so forth at uh, local elections across the country. Uh, once this becomes a precedent, it's going to be so easy, <laughs> legally and otherwise, uh, to justify any challengers to the Democrats or anybody on a true progressive platform from uh, running for office. We've got to be very careful about this. You know, there's a principle here, uh, but the shit libs are just running wild right now and uh, doing everything they can uh, to prevent Trump. Uh, I think there's a political move here that's not apparent that I'll talk about uh, as well. It's not just denying a Trump uh, ballot at, uh, access here. Uh, it's it's uh, sort of feeling its way with public opinion, this decision, and uh, with the legal and the courts. You know, this, this is a, a first salvo uh, for ballot denial uh, that could, could spread here. And in fact, uh, in California, Lieutenant Governor has recently just said, uh, well, we need a movement here as well. And it's been quietly building with petitions uh, to try to deny uh, Trump ballot st uh, status. Now, look, you know, as my, in my opinion, uh, you know, Trump is a narcissistic, uh, sometimes sociopath uh, and very dangerous. Uh, at the same time, you know, you got demented Joe here, uh, who's just a 50-year in the past uh, a warmonger here. So uh, what a choice we've got. I mean, the worst choice is in... Uh, in the history, I think, uh, of the last century or so, you got to go back to like the 1870s to find something as poor in terms of leadership and choices. Uh, and you got to understand that uh, this is the corporate party of America, two wings, two wings, Republican, Democrat, which are going at each other. And uh, both of them um, in the process are chipping away and denying for a de couple decades now uh, democratic rights. And, and democracy in this country, what little is left of electoral democracy, uh, they're going at it. And uh, to increase their uh, their relative choices and opportunities here, uh, they're doing whatever they can. I mean, look, uh, you got voter repression and uh, gerrymandering been going on for a couple of decades here now by the Republicans. I mean, that's the way they've been trying to Im improve their uh, their chances. Uh, and now you got ballot denial going on by the Democrats. And uh, uh, 
doing whatever they can to prevent any challenges internally, you know, whether it's RFK Jr. or whomever, uh, from challenging uh, the money bags in the Democratic Party who have already chosen Joe Biden. Although, you know, their choice is tentative, I think, and we may, we may see them uh, by May or June if the trends continue as negatively for Biden. They, they, they may make a change here. Uh, in in midstream, but after the primary season, so they don't have to deal with pri- uh, challengers. Anyway, you know this whole decision in Colorado is is based upon what's called the Fourteenth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment passed in 1868 was designed to prevent uh, those treasonous Confederate politicians who tried to break up the country. Uh, from running for Congress again uh, after it was all over. You see, uh, that was part of what was called the Reconstruction uh, and trying to change the character and the politics of the South so there would be, you know, no more civil war once again. Um, That was 1868. Uh, But then uh, Reconstruction, the deal between Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, was made in 1870s. 77 or 78 or something like that. And uh, Reconstruction of the South was abandoned. And uh, I'm not sure about how many of those Confederate uh, uh, traitors were allowed to run again in the late 1870s, 1880s for Congress, right? Um, Anyway, the 14th Amendment bans uh, congressional candidates uh, from running for office and by implication state-level candidates as well if they were involved in insurrection and treason. Of course, the Confederacy was a classic case of insurrection with setting up an alternative political government altogether and dividing the country in two. Uh, That was insurrection. And the 14th Amendment was designed to uh, prevent those people from coming back. By the way, the 14th Amendment didn't mention presidents and vice presidents. The court decision in Colorado says, uh, even if it didn't mention president and vice presidents, 14th Amendment, only lower offices, uh, by implication, it it implied that. And uh, defenders of Trump uh, are saying, uh, no, no, you got to have a strict strict interpretation of, of the Constitution. What it leads out, leaves out, what the Constitution leaves out, you cannot say, uh, it implies it would be added to the Constitution. In other words, Supreme Court and courts cannot make uh, constitutional uh, decisions adding to the Constitution, right? Interpreting something that's not there. Um, so it's this battle is around the 14th Amendment. What does it actually mean and does it apply? Uh, and again, uh, just because there's no reference to President, Vice President, the uh, Democrats. By the way, the Supreme Court in Colorado's 4-3 decision, all four were Democratic appointees. Um, now, I got a problem with uh, uh, judges who are appointed uh, ruling uh, against election participation, right? I, I mean, look, the, in democracy, the fundamental idea is that the people are sovereign, that people can uh, periodically delegate that sovereignty to their representatives when they elect those representatives. And when their term is over, uh, that delegation 
to representatives ends, or if the people think that that delegate is not doing its job, uh, the people can uh, recall uh, that delegate, right? Uh, so that's sovereignty. Sovereignty is, is the fundamental principle, sovereignty in the people of democracy. And when you got an appointed uh, officials like, you know, judges uh, infringing upon that sovereignty uh, principle, uh, I got a problem with that. You know, either if, if judges aren't elected by the people, that would be a delegation of sovereignty. If they weren't elected by the people, uh, uh, then they shouldn't have a right to rule on constitutional matters. If they are elected, then okay, you know, the Supreme Court, if it were elected, of course it's not, if it were elected, it could rule a law was unconstitutional, but they're not elected, they're appointed. Therefore, they have no right, in my opinion, to rule that the Constitution uh, th that a legislation is unconstitutional. The legislation comes from the sovereignty delegated by the people. I have a big problem with that. And you know, the U.S. Constitution does not give, does not give the Supreme Court the authority to declare a law of Congress or legislature unconstitutional. It's not in the U.S. Constitution. The Supreme Court 20 years after the Constitution almost, simply usurped that power. It said it had the Marshall Court, I think it was 1803, said that, oh, we have the power to declare law unconstitutional. Now, very cleverly, Marshall and the court did not exercise that for decades. But then after the Civil War, it started exercising. I think even before that, slightly before that, right? But it simply usurped that authority declare law unconstitutional. It's not in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution simply says that the Congress should pass a judiciary law and create a judiciary. And one of the first laws the Congress passed, I think it was uh, 1789, maybe 90, was to create a judiciary with a Supreme Court. But the Constitution does not say that there is a third a third branch of government that's equal to the legislature or the executive does not say that. Right? Uh, Americans don't realize this history here a little bit, so I'm just giving you a little background. To bring it forward to Colorado, uh, there's a real problem here when you got an appointed and politically preferenced appointed judiciary uh, deciding uh, that uh, someone can't run for office. And they use the 14th Amendment, which is really silent on that question uh, of president, vice president. Anyway, uh, it's a battle over what, what does the 14th Amendment mean. And uh, another argument that's made by uh, uh, the liberals here and the Democrats um, in justification of these kinds of decisions, this is coming out of the main decision, is that states have the authority uh, to run their elections. And states can do whatever they want. They can ban people from ballots. They can do, you know, ban parties. They can do what they want. And the federal government can only respond to it with legislation. And that's what's happening in the Maine case, you know. Maine is saying that, that election uh, uh, official is saying, well, we can, do, we, we can do what we want. We can ban parties. We can ban uh, individual candidates. We have that right. 
Well, I'm not so sure they got that right because it has tremendous implications for democracy and elections in general throughout the country. Well, anyway, they're uh, uh, doing that. And, you know, it follows, there's an analogy here, uh, political parties don't have to be democratic. Uh, political parties uh, can ban anybody they want. In other words, the Democrats can keep RFK Jr. off ballots if they want, right? Because they are private entities, political parties, right? They're not part of the government. Uh, in fact, Jefferson really abhorred the idea of political parties. Uh, anyway, uh, these are some of the issues bouncing around. And uh, I, I kind of... I kind of fall, you know, in the camp that uh, I don't like the courts interfering with elections the way they're doing it, right? Banning people for running. Uh, that's just another infringement. That's a Democrat uh, response to Republican gerrymandering and voter suppression. So both both sides, both parties are, are doing a trip on democracy here uh, as their food fight uh, continues to deepen. Uh Anyway, uh, th that's my comment on that, uh, and we'll see what, what happens. But it's a major threat to democracy, I think, a limited democracy. What's left of electoral democracy, which is being chipped away, a uh, number of decisions, starting with uh, Gore uh, versus Bush, where the Supreme Court selected the president back in 2000, you know, and then the Supreme Court said, embracing the gerrymandering decisions of state Republican state legislatures approving of the gerrymandering uh, although it's been mixed on that question and then of course Citizens United decision where in 2010 the Supreme Court said uh, corporations are persons and free speech by corporations uh, takes the form of spending money therefore on candidates therefore you cannot infringe upon uh, corporations, because they're persons too. By the way, that decision of uh, by the Supreme Court of corporations or decisions goes back to the 19th century. Uh, this is Citizens United, just an extension of that. Uh, anyway, uh, we we've seen a you know, and then the Patriot Acts and infringement on civil liberties, uh, and then uh, you know uh, the Voting Rights uh, gutting the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you know, is is really on a tear. Uh, uh, pun intended here, tearing up uh, a democracy in the U.S. in the last couple decades, starting in 2000. <clears throat> uh, and the political parties have jumped in too, uh, and they're doing their trip uh, in conjunction with the Supreme Court on democracy in this country. So we got a real problem here, and. Uh, you know, Democrats will want us to think that January 6th was a problem and uh, Trump uh, engaged in insurrection. Well, to me, insurrection is a political move. It's a political uh, uh, event. And uh, what's, your, what's your party or what's your organization? Is there an organization leading the attack on uh, the Capitol in Washington on January 6th? Uh, what's their political plans? Uh, uh, did they intend to set up a alternative government? What's an insurrection? You know, uh, Trump hasn't been uh, convicted of insurrection, whatever it means, right? Obviously, that was a, a horrible uh, uh, riot that went on, uh, but was it an insurrection? I don't know. That's debatable. But the debate hasn't happened. 
Uh, but the decisions are t- being taken that, you know, it was an insurrection and Trump participated in it. What does it mean to participate in an insurrection? Well, that's another question. Anyway, none of these decisions have been made yet, but yet you see these states already saying, oh, it's insurrection and uh, making their decisions to keep people uh, off of the ballot. <clears throat> uh, Anyway, we'll, we'll see what insurrection means here, maybe in the Supreme Court when it decides, and it will in January, it has to, <clears throat> quickly. Um, and we'll know the difference between an insurrection and a riot, and we'll know what it means to participate in one, and maybe we'll know uh, whether Trump crossed the line in his participation and call for an insurrection. <clears throat> but insurrection has been a label that's simply been uh, uh, stuck to the January 6th uh, event. Uh, if it was an insurrection, it was a pretty dumbass move. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, these people are just right-wing anarchists uh, in the worst sense of the word. Uh, what did they think? Uh, breaking and entering. What was that going to change? Breaking and entering into the Capitol. Not a damn thing. It's just a, a, an act of, uh, of anarchic uh, um, disruption, right? There's no political program associated with that. You know, there, there was no organization. Although, yeah, there were a few dumbass conspiracy uh, groups, you know, around it. Uh, anyway, that's all I got to say on that. I've said enough. We need to get to the main topic here. Okay. Uh, let's look at the main events of 2022. Well, GDP or 2023, rather, uh, just a preliminary here. You got to remember, I've said this before on shows, uh, during the COVID period, $9 trillion was thrown at the economy. Uh, $4 trillion was thrown in uh, government spending for various bailouts, uh, you know, uh, of businesses, the PPP program and small and medium businesses and all those loans and grants and everything. And then some was thrown at uh, the checks that people got and uh, expanding unemployment benefits and so forth. So, uh, you know, Congress and, and, and uh, Trump and then uh, uh, Biden threw $4 trillion at the economy in uh, 20 and 2021. Uh, and the Federal Reserve pre-bailed out the, the bankers and investors and threw uh, uh, another $5 trillion at the economy through the Federal Reserve and the monetary system. So $9 trillion was thrown at the economy. What did we get for stimulus from that fiscal monetary stimulus? What did we get in GDP in 2022, the first full year after the economy opened? We got a 1% GDP growth. 1%. Look at the numbers. From December 31st, 2021 to December 31st, 2022, the economy grew 1%. Now, we'll see shortly here in a couple more weeks how much the economy grew this year in GDP terms from December 31st, 22 to December 31st this year. Right? We'll get those early numbers here in January. GDP numbers, uh, but I don't think it's very much more. You know, we had this boost in the uh, third quarter of GDP, 4.9%, but as I've argued in other shows, that was a, a one-off aberration. Uh, the result of businesses uh, really uh, spending on inventory accumulation in expectation there'd be a big boost in uh, fourth quarter 
consumption and retail sales. And as I've said uh, in shows, uh, that hasn't occurred. Right? We're going to see fourth quarter uh, GDP well below the 4.9%. And for the year, you know, who knows, maybe 1% to 2% GDP. So we get a 1% GDP boost in 22. We get a maybe a little bit more in 23 after spending $9 trillion. Stimulus? Uh, something's broke, folks. What's broke is that fiscal and monetary policy no longer have a real boost to the real economy. A lot of that money just flows into investors and capitalists and the wealthiest 1%, and they reinvest it in financial asset markets, stocks and bonds and currencies and so forth. And that booms and we get billionaires. Yeah. So uh, it's broken. Fiscal monetary policy is very inefficient now. One of the conclusions of uh, the last couple of years, and, you know, inflation, uh, we went over that this year. Inflation, well, goods inflation has come, come down, mostly because energy costs have come down, mostly because we've got uh, a slowing of the global economy, including China, uh, and that has brought goods inflation. In other words, things that you buy, manufacturing things, durables, non-durables, and uh, and construction, home, and uh, you know, commercial real estate. Uh, that's the 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 big uh, event of 2023. Goods inflation has contracted; it's flat, maybe even declining. But services inflation hasn't. Services inflation, 80 percent of the economy is stuck at five to six percent. So that's the event of inflation of uh, 2023. Uh, goods inflation down, yes, because of energy mostly, uh, but services inflation stuck uh, at five and a half, roughly percent. Uh, the March regional bank crisis, we saw that erupt last March, um, mostly because of Fed policies during 20, 2021, uh, where these small regional banks took on a lot of treasury, a lot of treasury bonds. They bought a lot of treasury bonds on their balance sheet. And what happened was uh, uh, the Fed started raising interest rates, which caused the price of treasury bonds to collapse. That collapse when you had bought all these treasuries on your balance sheet, the regional banks did, Silicon Valley Bank and others, right? That meant their, their uh, balance sheets went into the red, right? And uh, when that was apparent, uh, people began withdrawing their deposits, which exacerbated the situation. And investors uh, stopped investing in the stock and bonds of these uh, regional banks. Uh, so the ultimate uh, fault of this regional bank crisis uh, really lays with the Federal Reserve itself and its interest rate policies. Okay, uh, so that was the big event. Uh, it's not over, folks. It's not over. <laughs> the Fed has thrown... Uh, uh, at least a trillion dollars at the regional banks to shore up the deposits and it's trying to get these uh, banks in trouble. There's about a dozen of them still in trouble uh, to sell off their assets, raise some uh, money capital uh, cash themselves to uh, boost their uh, uh, their cash uh, liquidity and balance sheet. And it's throwing money at them and so forth. There's a, a whole host of things the Fed has done and the FDIC has done uh, to try to keep these regional banks afloat. Uh, but the big risk for the regional banks is going to be uh, the collapse of the uh, commercial real estate market, uh, you know, office buildings and so forth that they're heavily invested in. Uh, 
which uh, have to be rolled over the debt. Uh, a lot of these are junk debt, these real estate, uh, particularly office buildings and malls. Uh, and uh, a trillion and a half debt has to be in the in that region. Uh, you know, that sector, commercial real estate, has to be rolled over. Will it be rolled over next year? We'll see. If not, then the regional banks are going to have another hole in their balance sheets. Okay, so the regional bank crisis, big event last year, not over. Debt ceiling deal, uh, big event of June. Uh, Biden agrees to over a trillion dollars in spending cuts in order to keep his uh, Ukraine funding going in Congress. Uh, and it doesn't even dent the U.S. deficit and debt. The U.S. deficit still over a trillion dollars a year, despite the debt ceiling deal, still in, uh, not enough, not enough. Uh, and of course, a trillion, trillion and a half every year is uh, just causing a run-up in the national debt, which is just the accumulation of deficits, which is now $34 trillion. Keep in mind, in 2000, the total national debt was about $6 trillion. Today, it's $34 trillion. Whoa. In two, two decades, it's uh, almost out of control. You know, $34 trillion. And, uh, you know, some mainstream economists uh, say, oh, that debt doesn't matter, right? And so does the MMTers, right? Money market theorists. They say it doesn't matter. <clears throat> well, but the interest payments on the debt do matter. And when you raise interest rates, which is the Fed has done since 2022, uh, you raise interest rates as fast and as high as the Fed has, uh, and you increase your spending and uh, so forth, <coughs> and you don't do, do anything about the Trump, Trump $4 trillion tax cuts in 2018, which are causing deficits. Uh, then your interest rate on the debt goes through the ceiling, you see, and that's what's happened. Interest on the debt in <clears throat> 2019 was less than $300 trillion. Now it's $660 uh, $300 billion, excuse me. Now it's $660 billion in just three years. You know, it's gone to $660 billion. It's doubled. And if interest rates stay chronically high, and the Fed needs to keep borrowing a trillion dollars, you know, selling trillion dollars of treasuries each year to cover the budget deficit, uh, then, you know, that interest charge on the debt's going to continue to rise. And it is. It's going to hit, you know, by 2028, it's going to hit $900 billion a year. Now, that's important, you see, because that sort of argues against this idea that the debt doesn't matter. Interest on the debt matters because if... The government out of its budget has to pay investors who have bought treasuries uh, a $900 billion a year, then spending has to be cut somewhere else or taxes have to be raised somewhere else. And what we've seen is this Congress, whether the Republican or Democrat, do not want to end the Trump tax cuts on their rich corporate buddies that finance their campaign. So there's not going to be taxes raised uh, to cover this budget deficit. You know, they're going to try to borrow their way for, for it. And borrowing meaning that you, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to have to sell more treasuries. Ah, but to sell more treasuries, what is it going to have to do? It's going to have to raise or keep interest rates high to entice borrowers to come and buy treasuries in order to fund this ever-growing interest on the debt. And by the way, wars keep raising uh, the deficit and the debt just as 
no tax cuts, uh, tax hikes on the rich keep intensifying the deficits and the debt. You know, the main reason we have these trillion dollar deficits are are basically runaway uh, war defense spending over a trillion dollars now. Pentagon's only part of our total war defense spending. That's 880 billion. It's about one and a half trillion dollars a year that we're spending. And uh, similarly, we've cut taxes uh, on the rich in corporations about half half a trillion a year or a third of a trillion a year. So there's your deficit. There's your annual deficit, right? That adds to your debt every year. Ah, uh, but next year they're gonna they're gonna tax social programs again. Anyway, the debt ceiling deal didn't dent it, didn't dent this problem, which is more fundamental. Another story of this past year, uh, economically, has been major union strikes and negotiations. And the question is. Uh, uh, have these negotiations, auto workers, teamsters, longshore workers, right? Has uh, has this marked the end of concession bargaining? I believe it has. I'm not going to go into more details on it here. You can listen to past shows, uh, but the uh, the the markers of uh, concession bargaining, which has been going on for 40 years in major unions, like uh, two tier wages and uh, no cost of living adjustments, and and uh, a number of other characteristics of bargaining takeaways—that's what concession bargaining is—have uh, ended, at least uh, in the auto workers and in the long, longshore. Well, never was an issue with longshore uh, in uh, the Teamsters. Uh, where two-tier was a big problem, uh, but now it's being eliminated. Two-tier is being eliminated. So at least the big unions have been able to put a stopper on uh, concession bargaining and are slowly now, you know, they haven't haven't recouped all that they gave away for four decades, but they took a big chunk out of it here in both of those. Uh, so, uh, you know, concession bargaining, I believe, in, in a sector of... Uh, of the union movement has uh, come to an end, and uh, we'll we'll see whether that that can continue. Uh, however, we got these long-term uh, term contracts now five, four and a half, five, seven years, uh, which means it's going to be a long time before we see whether uh, this trend and concession bargaining will continue. Uh, that is a, itself a marker of concession bargaining. So the picture is mixed. Uh, even for the big unions. It's not so mixed for some of the other unions uh, where we still see concessions uh, and what we see, of course, in the writers' union and the actors' union, uh, big threats to their jobs uh, by uh, artificial intelligence uh, technology. Uh, they have not stopped that. For, for, for certain sectors of the union movement and working class in this country, artificial intelligence will eliminate... Uh, Millions of jobs, millions of simple jobs and and uh, uh, creative jobs, right? Those those are going to be uh, devastated by artificial intelligence. AI is going to play uh, a job destru destruction role for those sectors that uh, offshoring played uh, after the nineteen nineteen seventies and eight nineteen eighties. Ever since for four decades, offshoring devastated the manufacturing unions. Well, what you're going to see is uh, AI will do the same, have the same impact. Uh, it's a big threat for job security 
Uh, and as I said before, worldwide, Goldman Sachs Bank Research has predicted 300 million jobs, simple decision-making jobs, will be devastated, most of them eliminated uh, by artificial uh, intelligence uh, technology, you know, generative AI, chat GPT, barred all these things. Uh, so AI has taken a big leap here uh, with chat GPT <clears throat> and others, other uh, iterations of it, of generative AI, uh, which is going to eliminate a lot of jobs. Very important development. And that means concession bargaining will continue in those sectors of the union movement that are going to be heavily impacted, already are, uh, by technology. Talk about soft landing uh, has been, you know, uh, a topic of uh, recent months here. You know, will the economy come to a soft landing? Uh, meaning, uh, will inflation uh, continue to abate and we will uh, uh, skip the possibility of a recession uh, in uh, 2024. Well, as I've argued uh, kind of against the soft landing, uh, that uh, we still see a chronic high services inflation, which will continue. And now global developments may mean uh, other other uh, commodity prices, including oil, will will now rise again. We will see that. It may be offset by a deepening globally uh, slowdown, economic slowdown and recession. So th those two forces, the political forces driving up commodity prices and uh, economic forces slow down, uh, you know, driving down commodity prices are, are sort of contending with each other, and we'll see which one prevails next year. Uh, so soft landing, uh, one, I, I don't see inflation coming down much more, at least CPI inflation, for reasons I said. Uh, as far as recession next year, for first quarter this year, yeah, I think the economy is going to slow more than they're saying, uh, more than they're predicting, uh, because consumption... Uh, retail sales are flat when adjusted for inflation. That's two-thirds of the economy. And uh, investment, uh, I don't believe, is going to, inventory investment <clears throat> is going to fill the gap for that. you got government spending, but you're going to have austerity. Uh, so government spending is going to be cut. And uh, the fourth element of GDP, which is net exports, with the slowing global economy, especially in China, uh, U.S. exports are going to decline. That's going to exacerbate uh, our, uh, you know, GDP as well. So the four elements of GDP, uh, I don't see uh, uh, performing strongly here in the first half of next year. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we're going going to see a recession. How deep and how long remains to be seen. But uh, I don't buy the. Uh, the argument of the soft landing as much as some economists. How hard, as I said, uh, remains to be determined. Uh, another topic of last year was the Fed rate pause. You know, the Fed finally stopped raising interest rates at five and a, and a half percent. Uh, as I've argued, it had to, uh, because if you kept raising it even more, then bond prices would continue to decline and uh, the regional central banks would be deeper uh, in the red. Uh, and uh, the Fed would have to throw more money at them uh, to keep them afloat. So the Fed stopped raising interest rates. I think it, it felt it uh, was able to at least uh, uh, blunt 
uh, inflation by driving down durable goods prices, manufactured goods prices, and of course interest rates uh, at almost eight percent thirty-year uh, mortgage uh, had the effect of uh, slowing down the uh, uh, construction uh, housing market. Uh, again, a goods sector. Uh, so goods inflation down. I, I think the Fed said, "Well, we got goods inflation down. Let's see, maybe over time we can bring uh, services inflation down too. Uh, let's see what happens." But the Fed has always said the way to bring services inflation down is to create more unemployment. Right? That means less income for uh, uh, the middle class and households. <clears throat> less income means less demand for goods and services, <coughs> and that was the way. To bring it down, but the jobs market, at least according to official uh, data, uh, has not really uh, softened that much. You see, so the Fed's prediction of creating unemployment to bring down services inflation uh, has not occurred uh, very, very much. Uh, nonetheless, the Fed had paused rates, I think, because of the financial instability it was breeding, and the pause in interest rates has allowed investors to say, whoop, you know, raising rates are over, uh, let's jump into uh, stocks again, and the stock market has taken off again, right? And of course, uh, no more rate hikes means uh, bond prices aren't going to continue to uh, soften, and they may rise, so the bond market reversed as well uh, after, uh, you know, a year and a half of uh, tanking as a result of Fed rate hikes, because interest rate hikes cause bond prices to fall. Rates go up, bond prices go down. Okay, so uh, the Fed rate pause was a topic uh, of interest here, economically importance of the last year. And uh, where's it going? I don't think you're gonna see uh, the Fed raising rates in 2024, because the economy is gonna continue to soften and uh, the Fed doesn't want to exacerbate uh, financial markets. <clears throat> it wants to boost them, which is, which is what it is doing. Um, other economic issues, uh, Russian sanctions. Uh, we've seen desperate acts by the Biden administration and NATO uh, to uh, try to uh, strengthen the price caps, you know, or setting a cap. The G7 set a cap on global oil at $60 a barrel and said any country that uh, buys Russian oil at more than $60 a barrel, we're going to uh, take action. And, of course, now they are. They're going after the middlemen uh, who do any workarounds, the $60 a barrel uh, number, uh, price number. And uh, this is secondary sanctions. In other words, they're going to go after insurers, ship insurers, and uh, uh, ship funders, and so forth, uh, which is kind of a desperate act here, because who knows what that's going to provoke <clears throat> by these middlemen who are critical for the global commodity markets. And then recently, in the past uh, few days here, uh, Biden has announced that uh, uh, it, he is going to require uh, the $300 billion in Russian assets and Western banks that were frozen in 2022, right? He's going to take that money and he's going to use it to fund Ukraine. Okay. Now, the problem is most of that $300 billion is in European banks, right? It's not in the U.S. banks. It's not in Canadian banks or Japanese banks. It's in or the UK banks even, it's in uh, 
you know, EU banks. Now, if the U.S. forces the EU banks to give that money or some of that money, $300 billion, to Ukraine, Russia has said, uh, we're, we're going to do the same to your European assets, you know, in Russia. And there's still a lot of assets in Russia, Italy in particular. Uh, so, you know, it's, the Russians are, are going to end up confiscating these Western European companies and assets if the U.S. forces uh, the EU uh, to, you know, seize and con confiscate and distribute the 300 billion. I think there's 267 billion of the 300 billion in Europe, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, in other words, the Europeans are going to pay the price once again of Biden policies. They paid the price when Biden blew up the uh, uh, Nord Stream pipelines, right? They paid the price when Biden passed uh, uh, tax cuts for. Uh, tech companies to relocate in the U.S., which meant European tech companies coming to the U.S., not expanding in Europe. That pissed off the Europeans, too. And now we got this decision. I mean, the U.S. is just sticking it to Western Europe, and these people just, or at least, just keep going along with it all. Uh, anyway, the sanctions, Russian sanctions thing um, is intensifying here in uh, 2023 and entering areas that uh, have some real repercussions now politically and economically for the West itself. Uh, Ukraine war funding uh, is, hit a wall here. $61 billion, uh, proposal by Biden got uh, stopped in the U.S. House of Representatives. very clear that Republican House and Johnson do not want uh, uh, to pass uh, this, uh, you know, $61 billion. Uh, maybe they'll they'll agree to some billion if uh, uh, Biden comes completely over to their position on the Im immigration issue and the southern wall in the U.S. Uh, that's what they're looking for, the trade-off, right? Uh, but there's a big problem. There's a big problem in the $55 billion, uh, that uh, Europe is supposed to uh, provide in funding. You know, this is why they're, they're, they're planning Plan B here is to take this $300 billion in assets in case, uh, uh, you know, Europe can't come up with their $55 billion, which Hungary is blocking, by the way. And if the U.S. Uh, Biden can't come up with his $61 because the House is blocking it over here. Uh, so what we're seeing is a, a back backup plan B, $300 billion here. Um, but the, there's a real problem here uh, of getting funding for Ukraine. They're running out of it. You know, we're, we're providing all the uh, military support for Ukraine at the same time uh, we're providing this military support. We're giving Ukraine a billion dollars a month. Uh, to pay uh, the salaries and pensions of government workers, a billion a month. Yeah. Where's that going to come from is the question. Well, you know, the government functioning uh, may implode uh, as a result. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a topic uh, that's continuing, funding and sanctions, both of them uh, economic topics of 23 going to continue in 24. And, uh, you know, the last topic is uh, China's economy uh, kind of struggling uh, to take off once again. Uh, and uh, what happened after the 2008-10 crash was uh, China's economy did take off and pulled up the rest of the world economy by 2014-15. Well, that doesn't appear to be happening again. Uh, China is still struggling. Uh, consumption is weak. Uh, the property sector is still very unstable, 
and exports are slowing uh, their growth rate as a result of the slowing global economy. Right? You know, clearly uh, Europe is in recession. Uh, the UK says it's not, but it is. Uh, the U.S. economy is not growing very fast, and uh, neither is Japan. Uh, so the G7 countries, uh, which are big buyers of exports from China, uh, are not firing on all cylinders. Okay, that's the uh, economic uh, review of uh, topics from uh, U.S. growth, inflation, the jobs market, the regional bank crisis, debt ceiling, debt ceiling deal union strikes and negotiations, artificial intelligence, soft landing, Fed rate hikes, sanctions, Ukraine, and China. All right, some preliminary uh, uh, commenta commentation, comments on, uh, on the political side. You know, the big outbreak, of course, is the uh, Israeli-Hamas war, uh, Biden totally all in, uh, Netanyahu can do whatever he wants, uh, and uh, that's genocide, and uh, Zionism uh, is equivalent to anti-Semitism. That's what APAC, the Israel lobby, which should be legal, uh, is pushing here. Uh, and anybody who uh, opposes and uh, Israel and calling for a ceasefire is opposing Israel in this interpretation. Uh, then uh, you know APAC is going to spend $100 million to prevent uh, any any uh, legislator, congressperson uh, that says ceasefire, right? Uh, and it's been trying to buy uh, candidates to run against those, uh, like uh, that representative from, I think, Minnesota, Tlaib, her name is. Uh, it's been bribing, offering $20 million to candidates to run against her in the Democratic primary. So APAC is on a, a tear, another example of uh, problems of decline in American democracy when you have a foreign entity like APAC, and it is foreign, uh, doing what it's doing, uh, interfering with elections. I mean, it looks like the charges of, of Russia interfering in 2016 are, are a pittance compared to what APAC is doing in 2024. Anyway, the, the Israel-Hamas war, uh, a final comment on that, uh, you know, Netanyahu says these, the objective is to eradicate all of Hamas. I think the, the objective is even bigger than that. I think the, uh, you know, the Likud party and Netanyahu, uh, the Zionist, right, uh, which is a political ideology. Zionism is not Judaism. Zionism is a political ideology imposed upon uh, Judaism uh, and that originated in the, you know, before World War One, cooperated with the Nazis because the whole idea is to uh, find a homeland uh, for, for the Jews. Uh, and, of course, uh, Britain said the homeland is Palestine. We're going to let you dump yourselves, the European Jews, uh, on uh, on Palestine after World War II. And we've seen the problem of that ever, ever since. That's Zionism. Zionism is a European, uh, white, colonial, colonial settler political ideology. And Zionism is not Judaism, right? They want to equate it, and they are saying, they, the right wing, are saying, uh, uh, oh, if you oppose ceasefire, you oppose Israel, 
you oppose the settler ideology of Zionism, and therefore that's anti-Semitism. You know, they're con conf conflating those two ideas. And uh, the media is, is pushing it as well. Uh, but I think the objective of Netanyahu is to drive Palestinians out of Gaza to make it so unbearable they have to leave, and then they will grab that land. They, will, they the Israelis, will grab that land and settle it uh, by Israelis. You know, at the same time, they're, they're really, it's not getting much news. They're doing the same thing in the West Bank. Uh, I think they want to, you know, there's been a more incremental policy, but I think they're intensifying it now as a result of the war to drive Palestinians out of the West Bank. You know, there will never be a two-state solution uh, because the right wing has control of the Israeli government there, the Zionists do, and they will never agree to a two-state solution because their whole ideology says uh, Israel from the river to the sea. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that what, uh, what uh, you know, the Muslims or Palestinians are saying? Hamas is saying river to the sea. Well, well, when Hamas says it, they mean the Jordan River to the sea. But Zionist ideology, when they say river to the sea, they mean Genesis 15, which says from the Nile and the Euphrates rivers to the sea. That belongs to the Jews, you see. Anyway, uh, enough on, on that war. Uh, another big political event was the uh, collapse and failure of the Ukraine counteroffensive. Uh, you know, almost 400,000 uh, dead, now Ukrainian forces, dead and disabled. 160,000 in, in the summer uh, as well. Uh, summer Failed summer offensive. Uh, they're now trying to... Uh, uh, recruit 500,000 more, 20,000 a month. To do that, they have to uh, uh, institute a draft of between 17 and 70 years old. Uh, that's uh, going to pass here next week, we'll see. Uh, meanwhile, the Russians are getting 1,500 uh, volunteers a week <laughs> and have 400,000 uh, being trained in the wings here. Uh, so, uh, you know, Ukraine offensive imploding and, uh, you know, my prediction is the war will come to end in 24. Anyway, okay, so uh, those two important political events. Uh, we also have the McCarthy uh, out and Johnson in, in uh, the House, uh, and Biden impeachment hearings on corruption connected to Ukraine, by the way, uh, going forward. We have the Colorado Supreme Court in Maine ballot, which I talked about, denial. Uh, we have Trump now leading the pack of his challenges. DeSantis is fading. Uh, Haley uh, is is uh, not really replacing DeSantis. Uh, you know, I think she'll fade as well. Uh, on the Democrat side, RFK Jr. is polling like 22%. Uh, then you got Cornell West and you got the Greens, Joe Stein. You got Phillips. Uh, a Democrat throwing his hat in the ring. You got Newsom, who's all but in the ring here. Uh, I don't think uh, if the trends uh, continue negative for Biden, I don't think uh, uh, the Democrats are going to keep him uh, in uh, after May or June. We'll see. Anyway, uh, we've we've got that pressure building on the Democrats here uh, in 2023. Uh, we've got uh, APAC. Uh, and uh, pro-APAC uh, American wealthy 
uh, capitalists uh, uh, throwing their money and joining with APAC going after college campus presidents, Harvard and Princeton and others to f get them uh, thrown out, to fire them because uh, uh, they aren't cracking down on demonstrations, student demonstrations uh, in favor of Palestine and for a ceasefire on college campuses. Uh, so there's a big attack on free speech uh, going on here. Uh, anyway, uh, that, that's an important trend, both a democratic trend. And, uh, you know, they don't want uh, teach-ins like we had in the colleges of teach-ins during the, the 60s and 70s. So people would understand what's really going on in the Vietnam War. They don't want that same thing to occur here with the support for Israel, and the, which is a blank check uh, being written by Democrats and Republicans here uh, for whatever Israel wants. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, the weapons and, and the bombs and the shells are all American-made. Uh, and uh, finally, you know, we have the Taiwan almost war, uh, which uh, the U.S. has stepped back from. Um, we have the Supreme Court Clarence Thomas and ethics issue and Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, we got P Putin's uh, December speech here in the Mideast and his Mideast trip, which is a big success, giving a lot of heartburn to, uh, to Biden. And his Putin's uh, December speech essentially said that uh, every Russian-speaking area of Ukraine will be returned to Russia. That's half of Ukraine, including Odessa and Kharkov and so forth. And interesting enough, he implied and said that, uh, uh, look, if Poland uh, wants the Western Ukraine, Poland and Hungary and Romania, they can have it uh, because those weren't really Ukraine. Uh, that was Stalin uh, giving those areas uh, to Ukraine uh, after World War II, and they're not really Ukrainian uh, as far as with court, and they're also the hotbed of the fascist Evanderes over there. Uh, so Putin kind of saying uh, uh, strategically, okay, you know, we got a deal here in the future. Poland, you can have it back. We don't want it. <laughs> very interesting uh, strategic move here. Uh, but very clearly, the Russian position is hardening. Uh, they may sit down, but they're not going to negotiate with, uh, with Biden and NATO. Uh, whose strategy is obvious to try to freeze the conflict in 2024 election year and say, oh, Ukraine is winning, right? Uh, and get it off the top of uh, uh, the, the picture here. Okay. The U.S. economic empire, which is now escalating. Okay, that's it. That's the review for 2023. Uh, join me back on the 12th of January and we'll follow up on some predictions.